This is Bigger Than the Game with Dermy Dove and Jose Ruiz. I had planned on sharing my testimony, but it's kind of been altered. Today, I lost a great friend. Philadelphia lost a great player. Jerome Brown died today. Welcome to Bigger Than the Game with Deremy Dove and Jose Ruiz. Jose, what's going on, man? Deremy Dove, what's going on, my brother? How you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing good, man. And uh, the the opening's oh, a little bit Before different. we get started, hold on. Before we get started, it's a big day today in Bigger Than the Game land. <laughs> got a shout out. Got a shout out, my brother, man. Happy birthday, Deremy Dove. Oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're. Yeah, no doubt. No we're, doubt. We're recording this on June 29th, so that's that's my date of birth. So for all you people into all those signs, I am I'm a cancer. So cancer's right on. So are you big into that? Like astronomy stuff? I'm not. I'm I'm not. I'm not. But I'm around people like seem like every job I'm at, like and I bump into people who really are. And it's I can't lie. It's like I don't really take it. But it's fun to talk about it, like hear them talk about it and. I, I go along with it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely interesting. I've had a friend of mine. I know we're going like super all No, topic, no, no. Go ahead. I had a friend of mine. She asked me to do like, I don't know what it's called, but you put in like your information or whatever, and it gives you all your like matches or whatever you call it. I don't know what you're calling it, but it, it's like a whole thing. It's like, it's like a Virgo sun. I'm a Virgo. It's like Virgo okay. sun with, with like, Pisces moon it's mm-hmm. like deep it was like deep it was a little too yeah. deep for me it's like it's like things that like the other signs that you're compatible with ones that you're right. not and right and all these things and like it, it's interesting it is like like so when I hear people talk about it I'm not just like whatever like I'll go into it and like talk with them some yeah. people take it real serious like yeah that's one of the first questions when's your birthday oh you're a this like I don't I don't like know. they know right off yeah. the top. Like I, I know like five signs. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, that's it. They they know and they're like, oh, I know. I use. I've had a bad history with like Leos, so I don't know about you. And I'm just like, you really can't. No one person is the same. So I'm like, you can't base yeah. that off of. But people do it, and you know, hey, I I hear them. But so I always like I'm, to do that. I say this like. I think I'm a spot on Virgo though. Like I'm very like neat. Um, that's like one of the traits mm-hmm. I think for being a Virgo. I'm very, <clears throat> I'm very organized. Um, I'm good with the ladies. That's what they say. Oh, really? <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm joking. But <clears throat> whatever. Some of the things I've I've said I've heard about like Virgo. You signs, know what's funny like, is like, I'm not really in. I don't like totally believe in it. But for cancers, I, I think I'm pretty dead on for a cancer, too. That's why it's like. Yeah, we don't believe in it, but we believe in it when it comes to us. It's, yeah. it's pretty accurate to us, but I, I don't believe in, like, living, letting that affect life choices. <laughs> That's where it's like. <laughs> right, right, right. People are like, I can't really date, like, this sign. I heard a lot of people say that. I can't date. If you're this, I can't date you. And I'm like, nah, I don't. Yeah, I'm I not, can't I'm not there. I'm yeah, not there with it. I can't do that. But, um. No, I appreciate that, man. Thank you, thank you, and it's no, blessed to have another year. And that's how much we love doing this show. Don't matter birthdays, holidays, whatever. Um, We're here. It, it's it truly is one of the most fun things. And people may say that's crazy, but when it's your passion, you love it. 
this is not the first time on my birthday I've done I've recorded a podcast. Like I I love doing it. So and I love doing this show. Yeah. So I'm I'm glad to do it, man. So thank you. And um, you know I I changed up the opening a little bit because it's a little usually you can try to be a little more hype, but um, yeah. This one it, it's it it's it's a little bit different and but it's special to us. And especially to a lot of people. And I think like uh, a lot of people don't really know the impact to this day that this person has had on sports and how in that short of a time, this person has left the legacy that we still feel today. But on, you know, this past weekend, June 25th was the 30th anniversary of uh, the late great Jerome Brown's tragic death, uh, so for those who don't know, a great defensive tackle who played at the U, University of Miami. He played for the Eagles, Pro Bowl, the tackle, and and died tragically June 25th, 92. And uh, Jose and I wanted to talk about Jerome Brown, his legacy, what kind of player he was, what kind of person he was, and the impact that that death had had on a lot of places on the NFL, on this franchise, on the city of Philadelphia, and beyond that. So, you know, this this was one that we really wanted to do. Yeah, for sure. And probably the biggest gut punch I've ever like the I've ever felt in sports. Like, you know what I mean? Like I've obviously like I know we both have. Like we've had, you know, close people pass on us and stuff like that. But I mean like somebody sports related for me it's to this day like you know doing the show we're looking some stuff up and you know all that and just and we'll we're going to get into all of this but like when reggie white announced it i still like get chills you know what i mean just re-watching that and it, it's just like I, I i don't know if i've ever experienced that as a fan because at that point this is 91 I'm I'm, or nine, I'm nine, like a, nine, 92. 92. This is ninety two, and you know I'm I'm a young like you know how you're young like it's you're all about sports like mm-hmm. you know what I mean like right now like we're obviously older adults and you know we got you know families jobs like stuff like that like that we have to like deal yeah. with you know daily, but then it's it's all about sports you know no responsibilities nothing like that and when that I remember I would never forget when that happened I was just like blown away like blown away. And again, to this day, like you mentioned, it, it still felt, you know, you know, when the Eagles have a defense alignment and, and if it's a pretty good defense alignment, we start comparing them. And the first thing that comes up is Reggie White. And then the next one is Jerome Brown. And um, it, it was just a, a very sad, sad day for Philadelphia's sports, but it's just sports in general. It's something that it rocked a lot of people and it rocked. And, you know, there's players, People will say that, you know, the late, great Reggie White after that happened wasn't the same. You know, you hear Clyde Simmons, Seth Joyner, you know, who were really like some of his closest friends on the team and that everything changed for them. And not just as football, but in life, like how they looked at it, like that was a brother who they lost. Mike Golick. Mike Golick, yeah, I was about to say that, yeah. Um how devastated he was. You can go online and see the the press conference that he had right after and how how rocked he was when this when, when I mean you can out. even see you can even see it recently where he was doing the mic and mic, you know, in the morning when that conversation came up he got he would get choked up. 
and this is 20 something years later, you know, so it's, it, it, it was a devastating loss. And, and Jose, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the player and how great he was on the field, but a lot of it was the personality, yeah. the personality that he had, where if you look at, you know, the Philadelphia Eagles and the Buddy Ryan, there's so many characters, such a colorful team, loud, brash, cocky. And you could say like they took on the identity of Buddy, but honestly, the the person who was the heart and soul who they took on the most, it was number ninety nine. It was yeah. Jerome Brown, who that team took on that identity and that, you know, devil may care, reckless abandoned, loud, brash, you know, funny, but gonna like border that line of like, ooh, kind of offensive, but you would crack yeah. up anyway. This team really took on that identity of Jerome Brown. Right. And and it carried off the field and off the, on the field for sure. And, you know, that that late 80s, early 90s Eagles team, especially defensively, um, were known as like like trying to like like bully people. You know what I mean? Like bully teams and bully offenses, which they did a lot of weeks. And again, like I'm not saying Jerome Brown's a bully, but it was just more that mentality, that aggressive attack mode, every single play mentality that that he played with, right? Like that reckless abandon you always hear about, you know, people people talking about players and like he he had that, like that motor, like we all, all those attributes that we hear today, he definitely had all of that. And it started right in the middle. And again, like when you have that great of a player in the middle and you have that great of a player in Reggie White on, on the outside, it, it was just a scary, scary defense to go up against. And but again, I agree with that. I think they took on his personality, that brash, the bravado, like really cocky, like you mentioned, like in your face. You know, they're going to talk a lot of junk, but back it up. Like they, that defense definitely took on that that attitude for sure, a hundred percent. And you know, this is just me talking, and I'm not going to say it's just one factor or one player. But if you look at the time that Jerome emerged from the time at the U in Miami in the mid '80s to then the late 80s coming to Philly and into the early 90s. You know, you look at it, sports and hip-hop at that time, it wasn't like now it's an automatic connection. Now yeah. it's like, yeah, boom. But at that time, it wasn't. And there's some no. there's some factors. You know, you look at Georgetown and the Big East, and if you listen to our podcast, check those archives. Check them. You know, you've heard us talk about that. They had a fact a play on that. You know, you can even see it with, you know, Isaiah Thomas and the Bad Boys. And then those L.A. Raiders and and UNLV, but yeah. Jerome Brown as a player to me was a guy who kind of helped bridge that gap for hip hop and sports. In my opinion, like Jerome kind of had that hip hop attitude and was openly, you know, young and showing that at a time when it really wasn't that popular, it still was kind of like taboo to do. Right, and he was he was built like out of like that Charles Barkley mode, like mm-hmm. you know that. At that point in time, like you had to be really careful how you spoke in front of the media, and you know players were really, <clears throat> excuse me, um, like tight to the vest, like you know close to the vest, but like what they would say to the media. And Jerome Brown was not; you didn't have to worry about that with Jerome. And you know he was going to tell you how he felt, no matter where he was in a press conference, an interview. Like you know we're going to bring up a few, you know those instances where it's like you needed a quote. You go, you went to Jerome Brown, and you're he wasn't going to disappoint. So. Yeah, I, I I appreciate athletes like that, and I know we always want to. It's funny because 
like as fans and definitely media, we they always talk about like we want players to be like open and honest, you know, until the player is open and honest. Exactly. Know? And you know what I mean? And then like then it's too much and he's in your face and he has an attitude. So, you know, again, like we were mentioning, like there was an aggressive type of play when it came for him with Jerome Brown on the field, but he was definitely aggressive like that off the field as well. And he he didn't take he didn't take any shit. And I, I can appreciate that. Absolutely. He did not. And he, he, you know, and I want to start honestly, you know, we know where he's from, that he's from Brooksville, Florida. And came, you know, Which really. Is, it's like, that's like close to Gainesville, right? Like, yeah, I'm trying not to like, far. Not far from there. Not yeah. far from Gainesville in a real small town that everybody knew everyone. And uh, Jerome, you know, being who he was, was a very popular guy in the town. But to me, he was a standout player in high school, but. You know, he, he gets done high school in 1983 and gets recruited by some places. But it's interesting because, you know, when thinking about it and getting ready for the show, Howard Schnellenberger was the coach at Miami. And Miami was not, you know, now a lot of people know the U and all that stuff. And they know the history yeah, and the dynasty. It wasn't the U back then. It wasn't the U. Sure. Schnellenberger trying to build something there. And honestly... Jerome Brown, it's a key point of this 83 yep. recruiting class where you had Alonzo Highsmith, Melvin Bratton, Winston Moss, Brian Blaze, Daniel Stubbs. Jerome was a key point of that, a key piece. I, looking at it, I say, honestly, him, Alonzo Highsmith, and probably Melvin Bratton, and Bratton right. got redshirted that first year. You know, that's the foundation that built the U into one of college football's greatest dynasties. And Jerome Brown is a focal point of that. Right. And then the next year they get Irvin, like Michael Irvin, and he's like a big part, obviously a big part of that. So that 84 class might've been even better um, talent wise. But what, what Schellenberger was trying to do was just trying to build the Miami, like what it is to, well, I don't want to say today, but what it turned out to be, you know, and what he was doing, it was trying to, he was shutting out, the rest of the country and just trying to recruit all those Florida kids and, and they go, you know, to go to Miami. And even, even Schellenberger was talking about, like, he was surprised that Jerome went to Miami, you know what I mean? Like being so close to Florida and he was, you know, thinking he was going to go to Florida and he did it. He came to the U and, you know, and, and the rest is history. And, and you're right. Like that, that 83 class was so important to for, you know for that program and what they built and what it turned out to be and then obviously we you know Jimmy Johnson comes in and then the rest is definitely history but you know that class definitely was was a big big part of what happened in Miami and Jerome gets on the field that first year and Miami winds yeah. up with that upset over Nebraska to become national champions in 83 yeah, he started that game yeah he starts in that game and you look at it you can make a case, honestly, the most important player in Miami football history, Jerome Brown, honestly. Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's a very good point. I've already I never really looked at it that way, but um that's a good point. Well, and for those who are wondering like why I can I will back it up because you look at it, so 83, they shocked the world national champions. Howard Schnellenberger leaves though bring in Jimmy Johnson, they get rocked. You know, they, Jimmy Johnson's first year was a very tough year because he had to keep Schnellenberger's assistance yep. for that year and all that stuff. They had the Doug Flutie, the Hail Mary game that year and all that. But 
they wind up emerging, and you've seen it. The attitude that J- – and Jimmy Johnson allowed it. He allowed the players – we know we oh, yeah. in Dallas to be who they are. But if for anyone who's – you can watch the U, the 30 for 30, you can watch on YouTube. When Miami on the Jimmy started emerging, they took on the attitude. Now, these guys all had swagger. Like we said, Michael Irvin's there, Alonzo Highsmith, the Blades brothers, Melvin Bratton, Daniel Stubbs, all and on. But you see at the coin toss when they're talking trash in that Oklahoma game to to Brian Bosworth. Yeah, and the number they were number one. They were like America's team, you know. Exactly. Them good, them good old boys from the Midwest, Barry Switzer, and you know that whole unit came, and that was supposed to be one of the best teams of all time in that Oklahoma Sooner team. And that coin toss was was something to see. If you have never seen it before, check it out YouTube. It's something, but it's it's something to see. Because you got it's on CBS. It's a nationally game of the week. Brent Musburger's doing it, and they're pretty much, they're calling Bosworth a bitch, and you ain't nothing. And it's they're mic'd up. Yeah, and to see yeah. and they're follow, you see it's you see Jerome Brown high. They're following Jerome's lead on that. Yeah, and it wasn't like a joke. Like no. you know, it was <laughs> it was he was Jerome Brown was standing there staring right at him and telling him right to his face that he's a bitch. He's not a player. He's They're going to win this game. This is nothing. And it's like it, you're watching this, and it's just you're in disbelief. Like, I, you, I've never seen anything like that to this day. Like, dudes just talking to them like that right to their faces. It was it was an amazing thing. Again, OU was number, ranked first. I think Miami was fourth. Mm-hmm. So it was a huge game. Like you mentioned, it was on ABC. But, man, like that – that was a sight to see. And and the stories, you know, so many, but just like the night before, he's calling Jamel Holloway the quarterback. He's calling Jerome's lead. They're all following Jerome's lead. Yeah, he started. He started that. And yeah. he's taught middle of the night calling Oklahoma players, calling Jamel Holloway the Oklahoma starting quarterback, you know, doing the whole Warriors, Jamel, come out and play. Like, play. like <laughs> we know that stuff later on from the U, but it had to start somewhere. And it started in this era, and it started with who? They're following Jerome Brown's lead. And, and when I say, like, I'm not saying he's the greatest football player in the right. U's history. There's a lot of great players. But the different, most important, they have to have a foundation. And he, like you said, he's before even Michael Irvin. The playmaker is yeah. one of those early guys. But doing getting ready for the show, it's like, yeah, he came even before Michael. And I don't think. Michael was a leader, but while Jerome was there, I believe Jerome Brown was the leader of that team. Well, yeah, because it took Irvin a couple of years. Like you know, he's a he's a freshman in '84. You know, he's not going to come in and be Michael Irvin as a freshman. Like, no, that's going to take a year, maybe even the next following season. But no, I I was looking at that too, and I was because I was looking at like defensive linemen and stuff like that in Miami, and I was like, yeah, that's right. Jerome was the first one. Like, I think Highsmith might have been the most important recruit. Because like he was like the first like really big like recruit that yeah. that came into Miami and kind of shifted a lot of that and got a lot of guys to come in from Florida to Miami. But yeah, I I mean Jerome that he he was probably the most important when it comes to like that that culture that Miami built, you know. And he was it was because it was based on a lot of his his attitude and a lot of other those players too. Um, but he was a huge 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 part of that. No, and, and the stories, you know. Uh, Troy Aikman has said his career turned out differently because of one guy, Jerome Brown. Yep. Troy Aikman's at Oklahoma playing for Barry Switzer. They're throwing the ball around. And this is a later game, not the Bosworth trash-talking game. 
But Troy Aikman is throwing the ball around, and Jerome's like, we got to get this guy out the game. And yeah. what does Jerome do? He he takes Troy Aikman out. He breaks his leg. And it wasn't like a dirty hit. Not a dirty it, hit. He, he, he put him out the game. And I think Aikman was a freshman, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Freshman or something. He got a red yeah, shirt or something. I don't know. Yeah, he was uh, he was killing them, though. And, you know, everybody knew Aikman was going to be this good player. And I didn't think he was going to win Super Bowls later on in his career. But, you know, and again, we're thinking about Oklahoma, so you know what type of offense Barry Switzer was running. But still, like, Aikman was killing them that game. And Jerome got to him, and, and that was that was over. And Aikman, you know, winds up transferring to UCLA and becoming number one pick. But right. so, like, he can look back on it and see that. But in the moment, you no, know, hell no. he, he's not too fond of him, like, obviously, because he broke his leg. And – and that was the, the kind of guy Jerome Brown was. He walked the walk, he talked the talk, and he was going to do it. And you may say, people may think, well, that's dirty. No, like like Jose said, wasn't a dirty hit. And, no, and, and that was and still is the game. If you can yeah. cleanly take somebody out, you're going to do it. And that's what Jerome Brown did on that play. Like, he took him out. It was clean, but he took him out. Yeah, I, I can't remember the offensive lineman's name, but it was a game against West Virginia. I don't know if it was that season or the season before. And it, the offensive lineman was talking shit, and he was talking about Jerome and shit, like nothing like that. And the first two plays, it was two sacks, Jerome Brown. Like it was just, he was just a dominant player, man. Like from the from the start, man. And you know, it, it's just he was just. And I remember in that football life that they did for Reggie White and Jerome Brown, um, Michael Irvin was making a comment. He was just like, I, I've seen him like go around guys like with speed. I've seen them pick up offensive linemen and just throw them out of the way. And like that combination of like speed and power, the league hasn't hadn't seen that at that time. Like, I mean, there were some great players. There's obviously great players before him and after him, but like at the defensive tackle position, like that speed, but still able to the ability to bull rush and stop the run and all that. It was, it was rare at that time. It absolutely was. And, and, and... And I don't know, that, and that's why for me he, and because you're right, Alonzo's Highsmith was a, a big time recruit for him. But I just feel like Jerome brought that attitude, and Jerome right. brought what the U became, what they're going to be known for forever with that swagger. That starts with him, and that's why I think he's the most important guy in this this school's history. Because what's a story? You know, his senior year, that '86 year, they're dominant. And they're at the going to the Fiesta Bowl to play Penn State for the national title game, and Jose. Now I'm I'm not born when this happens, and you're probably what five or something. Four like, five, yeah. <laughs> for so long, before I even saw the footage, I knew that story about Miami going down to that Fiesta Bowl, and they're all wearing army fatigues, and that story has such a lore. Talk about like sometimes you wonder what makes like what will last in history, sports or whatever. That story still does talk is talked about today about the U coming to that game all wearing army fatigues and they're ready for battle. And that was led whose idea was it? Who was the guy yep. leading them? It was, Who was the first Brown. one out of the plane? First Jerome one out Brown. of the plane. Yep. Yeah, it's it's uh it's a pretty intimidating thing to see, man. And again, like that team, the Miami team was great. It was a great team, obviously playing in the Fiesta Bowl. For the national championship, and you know they were trying to make a statement, and they made a statement, you know, and they didn't win the game. So the statement at the end of the day wasn't made, but you know that wasn't the only moment there where you know that and for that game or 
you know, before the game that um that he made the news, right? They had like that dinner, I think it's the day before or that Thursday or whatever it is, and they walked out on that dinner and he made the speech, you know, on stage and you know, he just told everybody let's go. And what they do, they all follow suit and they follow right behind him. So it, um, I agree, man. He was he was the he was definitely the leader of that eighty six team for sure. And they they was just whatever he wanted to do, whatever he was telling them to do, that team was going to do it. Well, you look at it, the quote he gave because and now, and we're going to get into this a little bit more too. But like, Jerome also fought what we talk about with the U and with the Eagle and like that media and hip hop and the media not really being off up and down and not accepting. Jerome got a lot of that personally as well. So he fought a lot of this when he was alive, when he was playing. And you see now the story always went, you know, they came in fatigue and they just abruptly left the dinner. Now, a lot of times are coming out that Penn State players were making fun of Jimmy Johnson and maybe it was all like a skit or whatever, but they didn't like that. They were making fun of their coach. So then Jerome gets up and says, did the Japanese go and sit down and have dinner with Pearl Harbor before they bombed them? And the whole – you hear Miami go, no, fellas, let's go. And then every, like, everyone leaves. Coaches leave. And I'll say this. I love that Jimmy Johnson was like, well, I was ready to leave. I was done. I was bored. I was ready to go too. Like he didn't like waver. Yeah. He was with his guys. And, and it, it just showed the impact that Jerome had, that this – team had and that this was not something that the media had seen from a team but especially a college team college team yeah they weren't used to seeing they were used to the notre dames and the penn states and and alabamas and usc's and just the the bands playing and the and all that stuff woody hayes and that joker but you know uh they were used to all that stuff they weren't used to these young black kids in your face dominating beating these traditional powerhouses Blowing them out. Blowing them out. Blowing them out. And and having swag with it, you know. Um, There's something about it when you look at that time frame of you get Miami in college football, you get Georgetown, the Hoyas in college basketball at the time, and how that culture shift just changed everything that we're still seeing to this day. And and it's just crazy that Jerome's that big part of it. Right, absolutely. And, we we, again, you mentioned it earlier, we definitely talked about, like, that Georgetown mid-'80s, you know, you know, towards in the nineties, right? Like mid nineties, that UNLV team, late eighty, early nineties team. Like, I, I don't think there's a there's like a coincidence in that. Like, you know, it, it's more of just like kids from the inner city having getting that opportunity more and more, and then that what hip hop became and what what it has become at this point, and yeah, that was just the evolution. And I think both of those things were evolving right at the same time and it was like one was elevating the other and it was just like a non it was like a a train man that the society could was not going to stop you mm-hmm. know because again like you had these you had these kids becoming prominent players in all these leagues you know especially like football and co- especially college football because they're like the younger generation and you know you have them and they're just elevating these programs and themselves and their brands you know whatever the case but then again you have hip-hop where it's like again it comes from the same areas, right? It comes from the inner cities and that's starting to elevate and that's becoming mainstream. And, you know, people, the establishment is scared of the hip hop, you know, revolution. And again, there's these same kids that come from that same area 
they're not playing in these big time programs and now they're going to the league and they're going to the NFL. And the same people who are scared of this hip hop revolution are also looking at these players the same exact way. So it, it was just so much in your face that I just think society was not prepared for that. Well, and don't get me wrong. I, I don't want to make it seem like it's all Jerome. I think Jerome led it in a lot of ways, but there was other guys too. And obviously yeah. we know with John Thompson and Bass and Georgetown and Pat Ewing in basketball. But what are we seeing now? What are we hearing in pro sports now? And we're hearing this fight in college football and college basketball now. Player empowerment. Player yeah. empowerment. I do believe, and you can definitely say openly with the 1980s, this era, when Jimmy Johnson really got there too, the Miami Hurricanes, that's like really the first team to talk about. They knew their worth. Right. And they knew like the hypocrisy that was going on in the media, in the national media, but also in their own university. With in their, their own backyard. President, you yeah, know? their own backyards. Yeah. And, and that's where it's crazy that, you know, Jerome had that quote because the president, Tad Foote, was, you know, big on he wanted to make Miami the Ivy League of the South. Right. And and he was really critical of how the 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 swag of the college of the of the football team, but they were like noticing, hey, you're building all these new buildings here. Where are you getting all this extra income from? Or when you were a student visiting Miami and they're handing out those pamphlets, what's on the front is yeah. a picture of Michael Irvin or Jerome Brown or Alonzo Highsmith. So you're ashamed of us. We're a disgrace, but you're taking the money that we're bringing in in this revenue. You're gladly taking that, but yet you're ashamed and we should be acting this certain kind of way. You know, Miami and Jerome and this team, Jimmy Johnson really put that to light. They knew their worth. They saw, they knew like, because honestly they built something, you know, Notre Dame's and all that. I'm not knocking those guys. It's hard to see that when they're established for 40, 50 years at that time, like, like it's already been there. But those guys knew Miami wasn't shit until they got there as a program, as a university, honestly. Yeah. And honestly, as a city in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah it was a rough time for Miami, yeah. you know, for sure. And, you know, before, I think it was 79, where Coach, you know, Schellenberger was there, they were almost a D2 school. They were talking about dropping down to D2. And, like, can you imagine that? And then he comes in, like, just changes things around and obviously these recruits start coming in and then again he's we were mentioning earlier he's recruiting in the state of florida and it's you know all these players know each other and they get to they get to miami and they can't even drive their cars to coral gables without being pulled over by the police and you know they were constantly harassed there but again because of their play and their success this university is flourishing because again like they're making so much money off these bowl games and TV deals and all that stuff. Like it's, it's pretty amazing stuff. Like what these guys had to go through. And again, they were so important, not only to that school, but to to that city. Cause at that point you didn't have no Miami heat. There was no like Florida Marlins. Panthers, Yeah. Marlins, Tampa Bay lightning. It was none of that. It was the dolphins and the the U. And at that time, the dolphins, this is early eighties. This is pre Marino, you know, like, they were they were suffering at that time before Marino came, and um, this is at the end of like that that great seventies run, and yeah, it would they were more popular than than the Dolphins team at that point, and um, it's amazing they had to go through so much shit. It is, and you see like 
that's where the innovation, I mean, now we're 35 years in and now player empowerment, know your worth, what your, that, that wasn't always a thing. And I, you know, depending on who's in our audience, like either they may know that they may not know that they may want to forget that or try to forget right. it, but this call it what it is. These guys set the way and they talked about what was being wrong in college sports. But then you see that has gone to the pro sports about, Hey, we know our worth and you're gladly marketing off us, but then you're trying to control us. But then that's the truth. If you don't like, if you're not going to, Hey, how they're acting offend you and it's so wrong, then you can't be willing to take in the millions of dollars, billions maybe that they're bringing in for your school or for this NCAA that you're willing to market off, but shame on you. And these guys were calling that out and that's huge that doesn't get talked about in a deep way that they saw, they had that foresight to see that and not just be grateful to be, Hey, yeah, we're at Miami. So many people say, I hate that argument. Just be glad you're, you're on, you got a scholarship to a university. Yeah, yeah, free, educa- free education. Yeah. To, to one of the best schools in the country. Like, okay. And I get like, that. I get it that, you know, okay. I had this free education, but you're not making, you're not, I always tell people, all right, so let at Miami, what if Jerome Brown said, hey, Jimmy Johnson, and Jimmy was an advocate for the players, but I can't practice. I have homework, and it's a back. I want to do well on this test, so I got to study all week. How often can a player say that at all, and then you think that scholarship stays? Right. Or, you know what, hey, I went to college. I was able to work. I, I did jobs while, you know, to help out. So I, I mean, it, wasn't, it wasn't no great money. I ain't going to brag on it. But, like, I was able to do that. Something, yeah. It was something, you know. You got these guys, Jerome Brown, 6'2", 290, 300 pounds, and then he's getting a stipend of, like, 50 bucks a week here <laughs> at that for food. Yeah. Like, come on. Like, these guys were calling it out before anybody else was, and that's huge. Right, and then, then they start doing things that, you know, they're, they're trying to earn money on the side, right? And then now you have, you know, boosters on the side, right? Like paying them to do this and paying them to do that. Like, you know, they had, you know, and all teams do this. I don't care who they are. You know, they put up pots for like biggest hits and like, you know, um, I know like, you know, like the, the Saints and all, they got in trouble for like the bounty gate and stuff like that. All teams do that. I don't care what they say. Like they all do. That. I know that they feel like we talking about this Eagles team, like late '80s, early '90s. They definitely did that. Uh, it was not a secret either. And you know, so you had these players making, trying to make money on the side like that. Like you know, they had to do whatever they had to do to to earn a earn a, earn something, like earn some type of money down there. And you know, then we look at that and go, oh, well, they shouldn't be doing that either. But again, we can't give these guys any money. Like it, it's. It's crazy, man. Like I, like you know, again, like you can sit back and from the outside looking in, it's like, oh, if I had that opportunity, I'm going to definitely take it—a full ride for to a great university. Like, I get that argument to to an extent, you know what I mean. But again, like when you're exploiting these players because they're at that university, then that's that's where the problem is. And I never did, I never did because a lot of times you're not setting them up for success. When you're at these big time, you know, especially college football and college basketball. Yeah, you're just like you're done. Go. Okay. Yeah, and a lot of times that's what it was. Like you're just yeah. there, and then you're not. A lot of times you're not caring about them as 
students. You're not caring about what goes on there. And guess what? It, it, it's it's that classic statement I've always heard, and I've told it to you, where I remember the, the, the one guy who was a voice actor for The Simpsons, and he was like, you know, hey, we're, we're so overpaid because we're doing voices for a cartoon and we're getting this money. Like, man, we're so lucky. And then he started seeing what the Fox execs and all these yeah. producers, that they're getting billions of dollars and no one's giving them rate, and they're the ones doing the voice acting. And then he's like, wait a minute. Now we're the most underpaid people because people are becoming billionaires off of our work. And it's right. kind of like, that's where it's like, yeah, you're playing a game. You're going to universe. So at, on its core value, it's great. Whether it's football, basketball, baseball, soccer. Yeah, that's fun. You're young and you're yeah, playing. If you're, if you're comparing it to what we're doing, then yeah. Like yeah. We're going to look at that like, what are you, why are you complaining? But just like, but there's no different than us. Whereas right. guess what? When we're on a job and we see like this company's, they're getting all this labor. I'm giving them extra labor a lot of times and they're profiting and benefiting and no one's talking about giving that profit or benefit to me, and I'm doing the labor. It's my right, you blood, see, and you see the boss pulling up and like yeah. some brand new Porsche or something like that, and you're you know what I mean? Like I, I've been there for sure. Yeah, exactly. I have too, and like my it's off of you know me as my coworkers or me and my teammates in this case, our blood, sweat, and tears. It's our sacrifice for football. It's their sacrifice because hey. As we saw with Jerome's teammate Melvin Bratton in '87, right, he gets hurt in the national title game. His career for the pros is done after that. Yep, it was shot after that injury. So all that blood, sweat, and tears, and all those things, and you're not getting the benefit, and you're putting this school on the map. And not only are they not paying you, but then they're going to chastise you. It, it, it's a huge and important thing that I think people need to remember that these guys started that. And now it's like, hey, NIL deals, and now right. it's player empowerment, but it had to start somewhere. And it, it, these, this was a, in that story, this is chapters on what the oh, you yeah. did and what Georgetown did in the mid-'80s. Right, and then when you have – and when you have a school or a team, again, just like Georgetown's and UNLV's and – you know, um, obviously these hurricane teams, you know, Florida State, like, you know, all these teams back then, it's like when you have a team that, like, scares the establishment, what they do in turn, and we've heard it all, like, I know you've heard it, I know I've heard it, but if you're listening to the show, like, I'm sure you probably heard it as well, and then, they, they, you know, they start getting labeled, and, you know, it's like, you know, they, the thugs and all that stuff, all these labels start to come out, and, you know, the media is killing them a little extra, you know, like they shouldn't be on TV, like all this stuff, like because they're doing all these antics or whatever, having fun out there. And and, and that's and that's how they counter that. Right. You know, like it, it's like by beating them down and just constantly like the scrutiny on this on this program. And it was big time when it came to Miami. And that's why I felt like also like this attitude of like it's all us against them. And that's why I think they had so much success because it was all these kids from the inner city where they would, if it wasn't for football, there was no other opportunity, you know? And well, I mean, I don't want to say that, but they had, they will get opportunities, but coming from where some of them kids come from, where I came from, where you come from there. I mean, it's like the opportunities are very limited, you know yeah. what I'm saying? And, and I think like that can like, that can make a team like closer, like all these guys played against each other in high school. They all knew each other. So it was, 
it, it just made them come together. And when you have your own university giving you shit, when you have NCAA coming out with like a with a tape showing what you should not be doing after plays and things like that, and it, they're just saying it was like our highlight video. Like when you have so many people against you, it can only make you as a team make you even stronger. And and it did for this Miami team for sure because again we were talking about them playing the Notre Dames and OUs and Penn State's like. Yeah, they lost in 87, but they were smashing all these teams. They were blowing them out by 30, 40 points. And it, it, it was just – I can understand why that attitude was there because, again, it was so much against them. And, you know, Miami winds up losing that. They get upset by Penn State. but Because um, if any turns to Verde, let's just keep it real. <laughs> honestly, you know, Penn State winds up having – they Miami, five picks. Yeah, Tess Verde threw five picks. Miami doubles them in offense. Penn State had 163 total yards of offense in that game, and some people say, "Well, was it the you know the the the, the fatigues, the army fatigues, or leaving the dinner?" Jerome Brown had five sacks in that game. Right, right. So he came to it, play. <laughs> right, and it just again, like, I, and I always say this. I definitely say this on this show. It's like when you. It shows what Vinny Tessaverde was going to become anyway. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's just when you put these players in these you don't big time Vinny? moments. No, nah, I don't love him. <laughs> Me neither. Um, and I don't I don't hate him, but yeah. he's Vinny Tessaverde. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Like, But it's like you put these guys in these in these positions that play these big games where a lot of dudes that are going to be in the league the next year as well, and they come out like that. That's going To me, that just says so much. Like, I mean, you can have your combine. Like, you can – I, I'm looking at that. You know what I mean? I'm dissecting those games. And right there, we should have known this dude is not going to be shit. And he was, what, the first pick? He you was know, the first I, pick that year in the draft. Yeah, it, it's crazy. But it just showed, again, like it wasn't because what the defense didn't do. It was Miami dominated. It was just turnovers killed them. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think, honestly, what happened was people want to point to the fatigues. A lot of people want to say that was it and this team had too much. I think it was take carrying for young kids and Jimmy Johnson. You got to look at it. That was his first time playing in a national title game as a head coach. Right. So he's a young, you know, coach in college and they're going through all this and they're doing something different and they're getting attacked from all over. And they're, they're this new, you know, bully on the block in college football. I think it was the combination of all that, that kind of took its toll on Miami in that championship game and what led to them getting upset in that game, not Jerome and the team stuff for that week leading into it. Right. And then on the other sideline, you know, we just talked about Jimmy Johnson and how he let his players play. And, you know, he was, he was advocating for them to do what they normally did. And it was just like celebrate after sacks, all this stuff on the, on the other side, you got Joe Pa Penn state. Like, again, like we were talking about Oklahoma earlier, it's like, you know, the, good old boys like you know what I mean like they did things the right way their kids graduated you know what I mean like Joe Pod did the right thing all the time he was like a god and you know we're looking at that and like on the national scene you know America is looking at this Miami team like we don't want this team to win you know the national championship like we let's go Penn State like and you know they had most of the country rooting for Penn State and again, because they did it the right way and we had to show these guys who are not doing it the right way, who are all in your face, we had to show them how it's really done and blah, blah, blah. But again, Miami dominated that game. You can go back and check that game out. It was just killer turnovers by 
a quarterback who's not that good. Um, but yeah, that happens. Um, Jerome that in '86 that winds up that's his senior year. That's his final game. He's a finalist for the Outland and Lombardi trophies. Dominant you know, season. You know those those that's for best lineman in college football. He's a finalist for that, and he's you know declared for the '87 draft. And he winds up being the ninth pick overall. Miami had a, Miami was strong. That's how talented, like you said, Vinny was the first pick. Alonzo Highsmith wound up being the third pick to the Oilers. Oh, third. So you know, but the best of the three of them, Jerome wound up going ninth to the Eagles. And Jose, I know before we started the show, you were talking about a story that you had heard Phil Sims say about when you know the Eagles wound up drafting Jerome in the '87 draft. Right. It was even before they were about – it was that day, I think the day of the draft, then, um, you know, Bill Parcells calls Phil Sims and he was just like, hey, Phil, like, you're, are you ready? And he was like, what are you talking about? He's like, your, our lives are about to change. You know, the Philadelphia Eagles are about to draft Jerome Brown. And at that point, we have Reggie White, Buddy Ryan's obviously here. You know, this defense is already – this Eagles defense is already establishing itself as one of the top units in, in, the, in the league at that point, you know. Um, you know, Buddy Ryan coming from that Bears 46 style scheme that he had implemented there, he was just starting to build this thing in, in, in Philly. And he added that other piece where not only you had the best defensive end of all time in Reggie White and possibly arguably the best defensive player of all time. Like, obviously, we can – there's definitely debates to have it that it was a lot of a lot of great defensive players. Um, but you had that on defensive end, and now you add – this dominant force up the middle, and there's nowhere for these quarterbacks to go. You can't step up. Jerome's there. If you try to roll out, Reggie's there. Then, you know, we got Clyde Simmons on the other end who becomes an all-pro. It's just they're building this dominant force. And, again, Jerome Brown. And the league knew, like, adding Jerome Brown to a defensive line with Reggie White was going to be outstanding. And I think, like you said, that story says a lot. Like, right. as great as Reggie White is, and I do think, yeah, greatest D lineman, I, I think greatest defensive player in NFL history. You know, if you guys want to debate that, you can follow us on Twitter. Yeah, I know we got a lot of Giants fans that follow us too. Like, you know, we can, we can have that conversation. I know you want to put LT in there, and rightfully so, but it's definitely a conversation we can have. But that says something when a coach is greatest partial and you're looking at it, and, and honestly, I've heard that story many times, too. That's right after the Giants win the Super Bowl. The Giants right. are the defending world champions yeah. when this draft comes around. So that's even bigger that Parcells is saying our lives are going to change. And now that's in the division with, you know, Washington and, and Joe Gibbs and all that. You know, they, the Giants had already established that rivalry with the Niners and the conference. So right. for, you know them to be looking at in Buddy's second year. The Eagles didn't have a good first year on their Buddy. And that yeah. second year, and him saying our lives are going to change. And he was right. It wasn't like he was wrong. No, he was yeah, right. He was spot on. Yeah. I, I don't know. Because to me, when I hear that comment, it's like that's the genius of Bill Parcells. But then also, this is just me freestyling right now. Then why wasn't he the first pick of the draft? Like, right, right, right. I mean, I'm That's grateful. I, I'm grateful he wasn't. You see, you know, I got the Jerome jersey behind me, but I'm kind of like, why wasn't he the first pick? Yeah, I mean, it was just defensive tackles were not 
picked first overall. We got it. There's another Miami defensive tackle a couple years later, and Russell Maryland gets picked first. And we'll, I'll definitely talk about that a little bit later um, as well when we talk about Jerome's legacy. But you know, you know, first pick was Tampa. They were making a lot of mistakes, right? And at that time, but I just feel like. There was if the Giants were picking eighth, I think Parcells picks Jerome Brown. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Like it's, yeah. I think it's it's like without a doubt. But you know, you were talking about that Giants team. That '86 defense is one of the best defenses of all time. And again, just I think the respect that Bill Parcells had for Reggie White and for Jerome Brown, he knew what was coming. You know what I mean? Like, and he knew defensively, like this Eagles team was going to be something. They're going to have to deal with this team, man. It was going to be a problem, and you know. Years later, like the Eagles were dominating the Giants at that time, and even though the Giants were that good, it was still like it was a tough game. I just laughed. I'm not trying to knock anybody, but I'm just like, imagine if like the draft was different, and and Vinny Testaverde like slides down. I don't think Parcells was talking to Phil Sims. He was no. took Vinny Testaverde. Our yeah, lives are going yeah. to change. They have Vinny Te- like that's not you know. I look at the draft. Alonzo Highsmith, even even Cornelius Bennett. You know, was taken. Yeah. He was a good player. I like Biscuit, but like, yeah, let's be player. real. If you give me this other, all these other guys who were picked before Jerome, I don't think Bill Parcells is saying that. Shane Conlon, the Eagles took Shane. Our lives are going to change. He's not, you know, not going to say that. And Shane Conlon looked good in the national title game. He got a few picks off of Vinny. There's something that Bill knew, and I believe other people did too, but who knows? But like, he knew Jerome was going to be that special, and he knew it was going to be a problem. Yeah, it was Jerome, and then Rod Woodson was next. Another great player. Yeah, another great player. And, and the eight before. Suspect. Not not a strong – the 87 draft, Jerome and Rod saved that top ten from who knows, maybe being the worst ever. Yeah, because it was, it was – it was tough. It's a rough <laughs> – so Yeah. Even well, I mean, like if you go if you go like first round in general, like Mark Ingram to the Giants at the end of the I'm know, first round. Uh, Bruce Jim Armstrong, Harbaugh. Bruce Armstrong was a good tackle for the Patriots at twenty three. Yeah, he was good. Jim Harbaugh was decent. Uh, yeah, Nate Odom's decent. You're not hype on Boz. Boz was there. Uh, he was supplemental, but he they had Boz. Yeah. But I Tim, uh, Tim McDonald was a, was a good player, and Harris Barton was good for the Niners. Those yeah, teams, yeah, he was, he was a good player too. Yeah, he was good. Uh, I think there's some good players later in later rounds that save it, but that's a rough first round, by the way. Yeah, but yeah, uh, but again, like that, that being the Parcells knew what was coming, you know, and I think a lot of the league knew what was coming, and and, and teaming those two up just by themselves, you can have anyone else, you know the other end and the other tackle. Like, it was just those two were going to create – you couldn't double-team either one of them. You know what I mean? Like, if you double-team well, Reggie, you were getting to Jerome. Go ahead, Derby. Well, I was going to say, well, let's let's look at it. And before we kind of go individually into Jerome, we hear about great D-lines in history. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Steel Curtain, Purple People Eaters, Fearsome right, Foursome. Fearsome yep. You know, there's, there's great D-lines. I, I never – here in that list, and I didn't have a nickname like those guys did, but when you give for a good four to five year run, you have 
Reggie White, Jerome Brown, Clyde Simmons, and you can switch in. You had you know Mike Pitts and 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 Golick were there, Golick, but yeah, Andy Harmon. But Jerome. still, three, all three of those guys were you know one's obviously in the Hall of Fame in Reggie. Clyde Simmons is in the hundred sack club. Right, that's the name. That's the name I think for me that people you know, don't really talk about. You know, had a long, lengthy career, and we know for it's a short time how dominant Jerome was. You know, all pro player. Why do we not talk about that group up there with the Steel Curtain and the Purple People Eaters and all that as greatest defensive line of all time? And do you think um, that they should? Do you think um, is that off, or like do you think that they shouldn't no, be talked about? I don't think it's off. Um, I know ESPN did like a ranking. I think it was like 20 – I can't remember what year it was. It might have been 2010. I, I'm not sure. It was recent enough. And they did like the top 30 defenses in the last 30 years. And this, the Eagles 91 team was number one. And this is ahead of like 2000 Baltimore. Like, you know, um, that Tampa – that Bucks defense. Like, And not to say they were like – statistically they were like they held, they held quarterbacks like 44 percent passing like it was something crazy like that they led the league in sacks they had like 26 interceptions they had like 55 sacks like it was just such a dominating season and it all started with those three guys that you were talking about and again like that's why i mentioned like clyde simmons 121 sacks like that's might have been the quietest 121 sacks of all time because you know, nobody really talked about him because you had Reggie White on the other side and everybody's like, well, yeah, Reggie's getting double teamed and, you know, you're singling up Simmons. He's still got to get there. You know what I mean? Like, and then you can just plug up anyone else next to Jerome Brown at that defensive tackle. Like you talked about Mike Pitts and and, and Golick. But again, if you Reggie's giving you 18 sacks a game. Jerome's giving you nine or 10. And then you got Clyde on the other side giving you 14, 15, like year in and year out. Like that's dominance. But Again, the same knock with this defense is why they're not up there with the 85 Bears defense and, like, that Giants defense and, you know, that Baltimore defense. It's that, you know, come big games, they weren't there. You well, know what I mean? So, and the, that, only, that's the, the counter that I'm going to give is to that, because I think you're right in why, but it's not a counter to you because you're not saying it, but to the people, right. is that I feel like in the past – decade when it comes to a different position group, the linebackers, the Dome Patrol never won a playoff game. Right. But they're starting to get love as as they should. You know, some people are calling them greatest linebacking core ever. And you can debate that whether you agree or not, but I think that they should be talked about in that, at least talked about. And right. for a long time I never heard them growing up in that group you know you knew about like that's recent like that's, that's a very recent yeah very recent like there's they named the Steelers linebacking crew they named the Bears and like the, the 80s Giants, the Giants yeah. you know but recently the Dome Patrol of the late 80s early 90s linebacking cores getting that and I think and they have a great nickname you know Dome right. Patrol and so like I think that the Eagle that team that needs to start happening like great defensive lines because I'll be honest I'm putting this D-line over the 85 Bears D-line. Yeah, hands down. Yeah, that's you – know I think I mean? that's easy. Yeah. But, you know – If you do a play if you do a play for player, it's like – like you go Dent, Reggie White. Like I think that's an easy one there. You go Clyde Simmons. Um, 
Well, you go Jerome Brown, McMichael. I'm going Jerome Brown. Like Dan Hampton, Clyde Simmons. I think I go. I mean Dan Hampton there, but and Fridge um, was there. And Fridge, and yeah, he yeah. was kind of a why. Fridge wasn't. Right, I, I, you know, I was a defensive tackle. Fridge wasn't nothing special. Let's be honest. No, no, he was just a big guy. <laughs> like, he, he was good. Know. He was good for running the ball in, like honestly, and uh, he was okay at best later on. He did have some plays later, but like nothing special. So I, I got to be honest. I just think, as a quick side note, that that D line that Jerome's a part of needs to get more praise as when we talk about great D lines of all time. They need to be in in, in the conversation for the greatest and talked about that top three at least like they need to hear more for him so that's that's right. just i want to say that you know yeah for sure and it's not like it was just like individual numbers like excuse me team defense as well like with these guys in there they were top five top ten in the league year in and year out when buddy was there when buddy left they were again the following season when buddy left it was the 91 defense which was one of the best defenses of all time, like for that one single season, first defense, like first in yards, um, points per game, and something I can't even remember the other stat, but it, they were the first one to go across. I think it was against the front pass points per game. I think they were straight across number one, and um, it, it was just a dominant, dominant defense. And it, and it's not like they were playing against like, you know, it's not like they were in the NFC like North or whatever. Or, the Norris division, whatever it used to be called. Um, they were, you know, the Giants, top 10 offense. Redskins, top 10 offense. And the, and the Cowboys were a top 15 offense, if I'm not mistaken, that season. And they were playing good teams twice a year. You know what I mean? Like six, they were playing three really good teams. And then you had the Cardinals, you know, and they would beat up on the Cardinals. But, you know, is again, the competition was there and they were still putting, they were still holding teams down to like 10 14 points a game. It was just something crazy number, man. It, it's just, you know, I think Brett Favre called this the Eagles defense. That Eagles defense is probably the best defense he's ever played against. It, it's just, you know, this team, Jerome Brown for sure doesn't get talked about enough as one of the greats. But, again, like I understand that like he played five seasons. So if you're, in, you're not from Philly, you probably don't even think about Jerome Brown. No, a lot of people don't. But and, and, and the main reason why we want to do this episode and I think, you know, he comes in here in 87 and he fits into this defense right away. And I think what's something is we know historically how Buddy is with young players. Yeah. You know, Buddy's, Buddy was tough. But there's something about it. And I wish there was more people would talk about with that Buddy-Jerome relationship. Right. And I think Buddy loves his guy, loves his defense. And we know with other players and the Bears and stuff, he has special bond. I really feel from different quotes and things, Buddy had a special bond with Jerome. And he, as a player, he had to perform. But I think Buddy liked Jerome's swag, his personality, his brash, his loudness, and was a big proponent of letting that carry on to the rest of the squad. Right, and, and letting it play on the field. he it was Just like we talked about Jimmy Johnson with, like, the U, it's like he let his guys do that. He did it himself. You know what I mean? Like, he would talk a lot of shit in the media. He would say stuff to coaches and stuff and, you know, in press conferences, and he wanted his players to do that. Again, like, they were 
they were the bully on the block, you know, that especially that Eagles defense, and they would kind of like punch you in the face. And if you didn't counter that, that they were going to dominate you that game. And he was going to he was going to blitz you, and he was going to call the dogs, and he they were just going to go after you, man. And again, some of the teams that would punch back were like those Redskins, Giants teams, like you know what I mean, like those Cowboys later on, and that's where the Eagles had trouble. But like. You know, that famous quote that Buddy Ryan said that, you know, I have 45 Jerome Browns, I wouldn't lose a game, mm-hmm. you know. And, and that's just the respect that he had for Jerome. And he knew he was great. Obviously, he took him eighth, so he knew something was there. But, yeah, I agree. I think Buddy and him had a really great relationship that does not get talked about a lot. And, you know, you kind of see it, it's early on. Jerome, there's not really like that, oh, huge, like, learning gap or curve. Like, Jerome's a dynamic player. From right, the start right from the with this, this team, and it's making his impact known. Um, you know, the, the problems, you know, the issues that Jerome had in Philly wasn't so much the performer or the player. He And we talk about the man, but, you know, hey, he's a human being. He was flawed. There were some things with him off the field that, you know, he was colorful personality. He was funny, but he also showed he was a young guy. Yeah. And – honestly kind of showed some flashes of what would tragically happen later. Things like that were kind of showing throughout his time here in Philly. Yeah. You would hear stories like Jeff Fisher has a real good story about the way he was driving in the parking lot one time doing like over a hundred miles an hour. And, you know, just, you know, some guys have a tough time like turning it off from the field and that was what makes them great. Right. But the thing is like, you can't live life like that either. You know what I mean? And I know Reggie White was like really instrumental in trying to like calm that down a little bit. But, you know, when you're young and you have money and you're very successful and you're great at what you do, it's, it's, you know, you can give as much advice as possible. I, I know it's happened to me. You know, it goes through one year and out the other until life experience forces you to kind of like change that. And, you know, at that point in his life, he didn't, he never really had that. So it was just more of like him just being Jerome Brown and having fun. And again, I can't knock somebody from wanting to have fun, but you know, some of the stuff that he was doing was, was borderline, like out of control. He was out of control for sure. And, and you know, you watch you research and see clip, like he had a love for speed, a love for cars, love for bikes. Right. And, and, you know, teams, I think we see later on kind of, they'll put in players contracts about that. Like, because, you know, it's a, A, they're investing a lot of money in you, you know, so they want to protect their investment. But B, it, and I'm not knocking people. You can love cars and love bikes and be right, responsible, right. but that need for speed, that it, it's dangerous. And it's taking a lot of people away from here, not just Jerome. But, you know, there was a lot of foreshadowing with it. And you know, one of the odd stories is he, he when he, in the offseason, one of the years when he was with Philly, he's back in his hometown, Brooksville, and winds up saving a young girl's life you know, a few years before his own death. It was in a crazy accident. It was going too fast. And it's like, those are those warnings that maybe you're like, hey, I should slow down too. Like, this is this is dangerous. Like, that you wish he would have uh, he would have picked up on. Right. And it's just, it's tough. You know what I mean? Like, cause these guys think they're Superman. You know what I mean? Like, they, all their life, they've been dominant on the field and in, in a man's game. You know what I mean? Like, where it's like, I can move you. You're standing there. I can pick you up and move you if I really wanted to, you know, and it's, they feel indestructible, man. And it doesn't, those signs can come and 
you know, for a lot of for for a lot of players. I'm gonna say all, because some of these players do see that and they go, okay, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna change some stuff up. But you know, he didn't feel like that, you know, and he was living his life. And you know, I remember watching an interview. I think it was Reggie White's um, wife, a widow, obviously now, but. You know, and she was talking about it, like, you know, Jerome Brown was that young buck and, you know, Reggie was trying to, like, calm him down. But she's like, you can see there was no calming him down. Like, he was just, he was out here to live life, and he definitely, he definitely was doing that. And and the, the thing is, you know, uh, there's a great book on that Eagles team. You know, Mark Bowden wrote it, Bringing the Heat. And yep. he really highlights, you know, it's he starts it before, but he really highlights the team like Jerome's like death and in that season after Jerome's death really gets the spotlight. And a lot of those guys, he says, were really kind of like they were envy. They're living vicariously. They're trying to be like Jerome because Jerome was young, making good money, was a right. star. So the ladies were chasing him. He, he was doing that. He was living fast and, and he was a young guy. And a lot of those, and he, but he also was kind of, Devil may care, anti, you know, anti-authority, anti-establishment. His kind of guy. And a lot of those guys kind of fed off of that on the field, but they fed off it off the field too. And exactly. really wanted and, and hey, I I don't want to speak for you. I I bet like I'm guilty. I was guilty of that. There's those yeah. guys you're like, man, like they're living especially when you're young and they're living fat and they're getting all the girls. They're at the attend and it's like, man, you wish you were there, and then you're cool with them, and you're trying to like you you try to like ride that wave if you can. Like, all right, like I'm trying to get this, and some of that, some of it, you know, in the moment, you know, it's like this is I'm pushing this too far, but you're just seeing this guy do it, and he's living life, and you're thinking that's what you want, and like you said, with those experiences, and hopefully, what we've been given that Jerome wasn't, you know, time, you learn mm-hmm. not to do that, but. he he affected this team on it the field but off the field as well in a lot of ways too yeah and and sometimes some you know it's very unfortunate but you know some people have to be like the message you know what i mean like it's very 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 unfortunate to even look at it like that but again like i'm sure his tragic death again like we talked about how much that impacted this team but again i'm sure it changed a lot of lives within that organization and when that team like on like, all right, I got to like slow down. You know what I mean? Like I'm going a little too hard right now. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, late eighties, early nineties. So I'm sure I'm not saying these guys were doing drugs and not like that, but it's super prevalent at that time of, of, you know, um, sports and stuff. Like I'm, I'm sure they were having their fun and going to these nightclubs. Uh, so again, like sometimes it takes something like that to kind of change a bunch of lives, you know, and, but unfortunately, it, it takes something like that. You know what I mean? So it it's sad, man. It was, again, like I mentioned at the beginning, it, it was, for me, it was the biggest gut punch in, in sports ever. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, there, there's a lot of stories and in, in about Jerome and in, in that in short life, but a lot of impact. And, right. you know, one of the ones is, you know, right after either his rookie year or second year, he's in the offseason, he's back home in Florida, and they're going to have a KKK rally in his hometown. And Jerome's not having that. And so him and his some of his friends 
wind up breaking up that KKK rally by driving their cars throughout, like on the street and blasting hip hop music. And those guys going scattered. And a lot of times doing more like research into that as the years, the police leaned on Jerome to kind of help break that up. And no one figured he was, you know, the police looked at Jerome in that light and, you know, he's, he's gotta be 24 at the time, 23, 24, but he was out there fighting against the KKK. You know, it's the, 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 the dichotomy that we all have, you know, was he reckless and young? Yeah. And could be brash and outspoken, but he had a heart too. And he did care and he cared about his hometown he cared about his teammates, his friends, those he cared about. There's plenty. So for those reckless stories that you hear, there's so many about Jerome that you hear where he had that big heart as well. Yeah, he did. He had his, that football camp that, you know, for him, apparently it was like, you know, a big thing for him. And it was like super important. And, I, you know, nowadays, a lot, all, most players, well, not most, but a lot of players have these little camps. But, you know, again, like he would have all these Eagles players down there helping out with the camp and, you know, I, I've seen interviews where they were talking about that and they were like, yeah, he was like super serious and he really loved that camp, you know, and he was, that's his, that was his way at a very early age, like you mentioned, like to give him back to that community that, you know, obviously, again, we talked about it, like how small of a community it was. But again, like when you get a player in that for that of that stature who makes it out of there, the most important thing is to give back. You know what I mean? And he, he understood, he definitely understood that and he was definitely doing it, which was awesome to see. And that camp, that was his first time he held it in his hometown. That was about a month and a half before right. he winds up dying. Yep. And I think that's where like, so many times you hear it. You know, we know on the field in those last two years, including that legendary 91 defense, Jerome, those are he's two-time pro bowler, but also first-team all-pro. Yeah. And, you know, getting double-digit sacks as a D-tackle at that time which now you, you, we've seen it with Warren Sapp and Randall. And, you know, we have Aaron Donald to this day. But that still was kind of, like, rare. I know there was Alan Page before him could get to the quarterback. There were D-tackles who got there. But it still wasn't something to see a D-tackle get double-digit sacks was rare. And he was really getting – he was a dynamic player throughout those, you know, all those seasons. He was in Philly from 87 to 91. But you felt like – nationally with the pro bowl nods and being all pro it was starting to click for jerome as well and a lot of people say from the um from that camp that he had run from you know he went to treatment from you know he had reggie come down to his church he was starting to make strides and to grow as a person which i think really kind of hurts even more what wound up happening that june day in 92 like that he was starting to grow up and have it click and it was just taken like that. Right. He was, you know, <clears throat> you know, the prime of most of like, you know, NFL players, it's it's mid twenties, like to you know, late twenties. And again, you were talking about like that eighty nine season, he had ten and a half sacks, nineteen nineties, all team, first, you know, first team all pro, ninety one. First team on pro, eighth defensive player of the year, uh, Pro Bowl, another Pro Bowl season, but another nine sacks. So you mentioned it from 87 to 91, he had 29 and a half sacks, you know, in those seasons. So 
you know, like, it, again, like you may think like, oh, 29 and a half sacks, but we're talking about defensive tackle here. And, you know, his first season, he played like 12 games. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's, it's pretty impressive numbers in Miami in three seasons. He had 21 sacks. I think it was 21 and a half. So again, and, we're talking about from the defensive tackle position. And let's That's remember impressive. his rookie year is the strike year. Right. So really you're looking at, four full seasons because the strike year happened in 87. That's his first year. So really, so 29 and a half, and he played some in 87, but really four full seasons he had under right. his belt. So five years before seasons, like fully. So he he really was coming. And, you know, there's, there's some stories even, you know, Buddy gets fired in 1990, and a lot of people are upset we know how tight, especially the defense, was with Buddy. And in come, you know, Rich Kotite is promoted from OC to head coach. And, you you know, a lot of guys were mad at Randall Cunningham. They blame Randall for the offensive struggles that have been the playoffs. They thought Randall set it up. They thought Rich Kotite was a puppet for ownership at the time, yep. Norman Brayman. So there's a lot of hostility going into that 91 season, which wound up being Jerome's last and a lot of things happen where you even see Rich Kotite, you know, he was trying to establish the offense and be tougher and winds up kind of like Jerome says something and Rich says something back and Jerome's ready to fight the head coach. No, and there's video footage of this. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's video footage. You can see that. I've seen it. I know you've seen it there. I mean, it's like he wasn't like just talking he was trying to fight him like if it wasn't for guys holding him back and really having to hold him back not like just standing there like they had to like push him off he was going to whoop his ass like you know what i mean and that's the head coach and to be fair rich Kotite was ready to go too now you're right yeah, he, he was no, he would have lost he, he would have lost like he wouldn't have won but rich Kotite's a former player he would want to fight too um so that, that that just kind of shows where, but you know, at the end of that year, and then when Jerome passes away, what Rich says about him. So it, it kind of is the up and down with Jerome Brown. Like he had yeah. that thing of you love him one minute, hate him the next minute, but then you're back to hugging and laughing with him. Like Jerome yeah. had that kind of personality, like where the, he's ready to fight the head. A lot of people get blackballed for that, right? Um, but you know, Jerome. Jerome just kind of had that way, and and they wound up coming together and and having a good relationship. I think even Jerome apologizing later on for that, you know. But it's something that because I heard that story for a while. I remember reading Mark Bowden's book, and then I remember seeing a football life, and I've seen like a. I go, they actually have footage of this fight. Like, I yeah, think he had like, and you can see it. Like, they, he was ready to. He's ready to kill Rich Kotite. Yeah, I don't know what was said, but he was he was trying to get after him, man. But again, like these defensive guys, like you mentioned earlier, really felt like, you know, like Buddy Vine was set up to to lose his job, and you know, um, because again, they had success on the Buddy Ryan. They just didn't have playoff success, and that's ultimately you got to win playoff games to to keep your job. And you know, Buddy, we talked about it on our show where we did our show, Buddy Ryan. Check the archives. Check them. And it, it was early on, too. It was a nice early on show. It was one of our favorite shows. And, you know, we talked about what happened with Buddy and why, you know, the Buddy loses his job. And, again, like, the talent was here. Like, we're talking about all these talented players. And they just, again, the knock on this defense is – and not even – yeah, I guess it is a knock. Like, 
they don't get talked about with the all-time greats like those Steelers and, you know, all those great defenses because they didn't win enough, you know. And, again, at the end of the day, to get remembered, you have to win big-time games. And they didn't – you know, they had a lot of great, like, statement regular season games. You know, they had a lot of nickname games, you know, the House of Pain, the, you know, body bag game. Like, you know, they had so Fog Bowl. Like, they had they were part of so many legendary games, but they don't have that signature dominant – like playoff game, you know what I mean? Like, like again, like these 85 Bears, like the 86 Giants against the 49ers, like they, they don't have that dominant game. If they did, then I think this defense and some of these players are talked about more. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it, it's – you look at it, and so 91, wanna be in Jerome's last year, that defense was legendary. Um, they go 10-6 and six that year. With Randall being knocked out in the second quarter of the first game, a lot of people say, and I think I know, I I don't think it, I think they would have been a playoff team, but people say Super Bowl aspirations could have been had in 91 yeah. if Randall's healthy. But, you know, you come off of that and you come off of that strong defensive, you know, season, and now you get Randall back and you're thinking 92 can be special. You yeah. know, Bud Carson's a D coordinator. And then, you know, June 25th, 1992, Jerome's in that Corvette and loses control of it. And, and the sad, tragic thing that makes you mad at Jerome, the number one thing is, and it happened, and, you know, I, I believe things things happen, you know, that, you know, you can't, you can't argue with what happened. You know, I got to move right, forward, right. but his 12-year-old nephew was in the car, too. And they both get killed, and that's that's where it is, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, what are we doing? Yeah, yeah. yeah it, I mean, it's tough to look back and point fingers and and stuff like that because it's not going to change anything. So, uh, I'm with you on that, Jeremy. But again, like, that's the part that is left out a lot of times. And like, yeah, his, Jerome Brown's death is 100% tragic. And again, I know we've. That's why we're doing this show, right? Like it's it's that tragic. This was thirty years ago, and we're still talking about it. Like it just kind of just happened. But again, the other piece of it is this twelve-year-old nephew that he had in the car with him, also tragically loses his life as well. And you know he didn't have a chance. You know what I mean? Like he didn't grow up. He wasn't in the NFL. He didn't do right. any of that stuff. You know what I mean? Like he still had a whole lot of life to live. And again, it's it's here, kids. It's it's. Just a different feeling, you know. Nah, and so it's um, it's something that that team never bounced back. Nope. Um, now ninety two, there's a lot of things, you know, it, and it's a saying that we had heard for so long. And I guess with the Eagles winning in twenty seventeen, you don't have to hear it anymore. But I heard it for so long, you know, bring it home for Jerome. That's that was kind of like a slogan. For that year, but it went throughout every team that you know got to the playoffs for the Eagles yeah. years after. Years after Jerome was gone, people never played with Jerome. But throughout the city, Eagles fan, you would say, "Bring it home for Jerome," and that was the message in '92. And they wind up keeping Jerome's locker that year the same. You know, um, interesting story. That first game of the '92 season was against the Saints, and they invited yeah. Jerome's family there, and they're you know. The plan was from ownership, Norman Brayman, have a ceremony and just to like 
present them with Jerome's jersey that's in this like uh this like case kind of this plastic you know like a frame to mm-hmm. to Jerome's family so like Reggie's out there and Seth and so Reggie yeah. gets the mic and starts going and says just off script no one will ever wear number 99 in Eagle history again. And that wasn't the plan. They weren't going to retire Jerome's number, but Reggie said it and said it in front of 65,000 people at the vet and they go crazy. So Jerome's number was not supposed to be retired, but Reggie white kind of retired it. And (laughs) number 99 is no one has worn that Jersey since, you know, and, and it's a special Jersey. And, and on YouTube, like I, that's the jersey I have behind me, and it's one of the valued ones I have. And um, the Eagles did, and they played some inspired ball yeah, in honor of Jerome in that season. There's a lot of great moments, you know. One of the great goal line stands of all time happened that year against the Cardinals, where it's like what eight plays at the one yard line, yeah. you know, and and the Eagles wind up holding them and getting that win seven to three and. The, you know, they would stop him on fourth down, and then there was a offside. Yeah, you know, which is miraculous. All it, it was, it's one of the great goal line stands in NFL history. Right, right. Um, even I know you know the story of the the wild card game in, in New Orleans at the Superdome and what they do, and 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 that was special as well, and, and bringing his locker to New Orleans and. Yeah, when the players didn't even know they were doing that, they walk in the locker room and they see all of Jerome's stuff in there. And, again, you talk about the Dome Patrol, like this is who they were playing. These were the top two defenses or two of the top defenses in the league. And, you know, New Orleans is at home and they haven't won a playoff game in forever, you know, maybe ever. I'm trying to think at that oh, point. That, at that point, never, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, they, they were, you know, the Eagles were going in there and we all know playing in the Superdome how that is. And, you know, it was a good game, close game, and then the Eagles pulled it out late. And but that having that locker there definitely kind of motivated them even more. And we're watching this game, and we're like, "Holy shit!" Like this team, you know, like this team may do it. You know what I mean? Like we got that defense is still really good. You got Randall, you got whatever. Like, you know, they pulled out. I think it was like thirty-six to twenty or something like that. That game, and it was just, it was just a great game, a great moment for for the Eagles and. You know, and then next week they played the Cowboys, and it was, it was that's a different type of team. There. It was over. It was over. Yeah. And, and now, after the two season, free agency happens, and that team breaks up. Reggie goes, Keith Jackson. So many guys are gone after that, and that that era of football really is over officially over after after that loss to Dallas. But we can be honest. That era of football really ended June twenty fifth, ninety two, yep. in Florida, when Jerome, you know, and his nephew lost their life. Now, Jose, something that a lot of people have said to me when I was growing up, that I'm obviously there's there's no way we'll ever know, but I find it interesting, is a lot of people have said if Jerome was still alive, Reggie White would not have gone to Green Bay, and by that. Maybe not everybody, but other players maybe would have stayed in Philly. Do you think that to be true? I think it's a good possibility uh, of that happening. Just because, like we talked about earlier, Jeremy, it's like that relationship. It was like a older brother, younger brother type of relationship, and and not only like their relationship, like they have relationships with each other's families. Like 
you know, Reggie would go down and hang out with Jerome's family, like we were talking about earlier. Like not even like for the camp. It was just like as a friendship, Jerome Brown would hang out with Reggie White and his wife at the time and, and their family. And, you know, so I'm sure that that Jerome would have had a, a big time say and if Reggie was leaving. And again, because even with all of that being said, you know, there's reports that, you know, Reggie White, if he was offered any type of deal by the Eagles, he would have signed it, you know, and he wasn't even offered a, a contract by the Philadelphia Eagles, apparently. Um, so, you know, I, I think, and I think if Reggie stays a bunch of other, maybe Keith Jackson stays, I'm not sure, but, you know, like it, it's, it's a big what if for sure. And, um, or, you know, how long does Jerome stay if Reggie leaves? You know what I mean? After that. And, you know, if Jerome going out of Miami playing for the Dolphins or something like that, like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, a lot of what ifs and what, you know, what could have happened. But I think, I think if Jerome's here and plans to stay here, I think Reggie most likely will stay as well. Do you think Jerome, if he would have lived longer, would he have been a, a Hall of Famer? Uh, I, I absolutely think so. I mean, I know defensive tackle, it's, it's a tough, it's one of those tough positions to get in the Hall of Fame. But, you know, if, you know, we can look at, we can talk about legacy, right, and and look at, you know, those defensive tackles that came out of Miami and all those great players. Like, you know, you mentioned – I mentioned earlier, like, Russell Maryland, you know, Cortez Kennedy, you know, then you got Warren Sapp after that. And we all know how great – you know, Russell Maryland wasn't great like we thought he was going to be. Still a very solid player for a Super Bowl team. You know, Cortez Kennedy was at one point the best defensive tackle in the NFL. Yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, he's a Hall of Famer, and we all know – Warren Sapp's a Hall of Famer. And each and every one of them will say Jerome Brown was a much better player than I was, you know. And I think we talked about impact, and obviously we're talking about, you know, the University of Miami still. And I think the impact that Jerome had on those guys and have in that position, that it made that position sexy, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it, it made that playing defensive tackle for the University of Miami like a sexy position, like a quarterback or whatever the case. And you know, even when Jerome passed, Cortez Kennedy changes his number to 99 for that season. And it, it's just like the respect that all these guys have for him. I, I think it's a he would have been first ballot Hall of Famer. Like we're, we're looking at a defensive tackle that's like changing the position. You know what I mean? Like right before our eyes and, and is and is including a lot of speed and agility, but not only having that speed and agility, but definitely all the power that you need to play that position. So I just think it, that was a special, different type of player. And I, I think, I think absolutely. No. And I think, yeah, you look at in, in the eighties with like the New York jets, that sack exchange and Mark Gastineau was getting to the quarterback and making noise and dancing. But you look at Gastineau, Gastineau is about six, five, two seventy five, very lean looking. Yeah. Kind of had that like, like gold gym kind of body, right? Yeah, that 80s body. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I don't know of a D tackle. Jerome, you know, think think Warren Sapp, really. Right. Or, you know, right. for those who don't know, or he had that kind of build. And to see a player on defense get to the quarterback like that and then to be so expressive and celebratory, I think he was the first like that. Like as far as not not the first great D tackle to rush the passer, yeah, yeah. But, but that build, that mold, that mold of like 
celebrating, making it like he gets a sack. He's going to be dancing, making moves. And he's Give a big, salute. yeah, he's a big heavier, yeah, he's a heavy set guy. Um, we see that now, you know, Sap did it, and now all the like now that's just like common ground. Like we're just yeah. used to that, but you weren't seeing that, in my opinion. If I'm wrong, let me know. But I've been thinking about it, and look, like Drone was the one to really start that, and. You know, Warren Sapp talks all the time about the influence that Jerome had on his career and that, you know, his first game of his career was at the Eagles. He got his first sack at the vet, you know, when he's with Tampa Bay. And 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 he talked about, like, you know, when people were talking about, oh, do you hate coming to the vet? He goes, no, I got my first sack there. He's like, that's where Jerome Brown played. I remember him always Jerome Brown played here. So I can't hate it, you know. The impact that Jerome just carried on, and you said it great, like from Russell to Cortez Kennedy to Sap. And I'll, I'll go, for, let's be real. People are comparing who's a, the D tackle I'm hearing the most, and people say greatest D tackle ever. The the combo I'm hearing, rightfully or wrong, I, I think that should not be it. But you're hearing Aaron Donald compared to Warren Sap. Yeah. And Sap is Jerome Brown 2.0. In every way, honestly, not just not just like on the field, but personality, loud, brash, like it's Warren Sapp's like a, a Jerome Brown Jr. almost. And I do think, like like you said, like he would have been a first ballot Hall of Famer. And I wonder, and I think the conversation about Aaron Donald after the Super Bowl and stuff. I'm not gonna lie, throughout I've thought about Jerome and just if he would have lived. Will we be saying that about him? Will we be throwing that his name in there, you know, as is it Aaron Donald or Warren Sapp? Or what about Aaron Donald, Warren Sapp, or Jerome Bryant? Like, will we have been doing that? Like, it's one of those what ifs that we'll never know. Right. I mean, you we've had John Randall. You know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. so many great defensive tackles, especially, like, that come after this era of, of football, Um, you know, in the NFL. But, yeah, I think – you know, again, we're looking at, we were talking about it earlier, you know, um, you know, 29 and a half sacks and roughly four seasons at that point. You know what I mean? Like you, you add another eight more seasons to that. Like, I, I just think, you know, it's, it's a hall of fame resume. We are, he's already in four seasons, let's just say already two first team, all pros, two pro bowls, you know, it, it's just, the league is already starting to recognize it. It's, this would have been a perennial pro, pro Bowl player every season. You know, it was just – and then playing with Reggie, he's may not get that double team that a lot of these other great players are getting, so he has more of an opportunity. You know, and then now we're talking about the evolution of the NFL as well. So now these teams are going to start throwing more, and now he's going to have even more opportunities to rush the passer. Rush the passer. So it's like you just add all that up, and you're going to see these numbers kind of like just keep evolving – as the player is going to evolve again, he's not even entering his prime yet. So it's just, I think it's without a doubt. And, and, and again, like you can take our opinions on it, fine, like, or not take them. That's perfectly fine. But again, like look up what Jeremy was talking about and some of how some of these players, especially defensive line and defensive tackles talked about Jerome Brown, you know, like they're like being like, you know, before them and stuff like that. You, you'll see we're not the only ones with that same opinion. And we're talking about all time great players as well. So I think, you know, it's important that it's not just – I think a lot of people can look at it as it's a local story. 
it's a local story for just Philadelphia, or if you want to say for Miami or Brooksville, even, you know, Jerome Brown. Right. And, and he definitely is. He affected those cities directly in a lot of ways. But to me, nationally, he's a part of how the sports culture changed. And I don't think people connect those dots a lot of times that the franchises, the era, who he was, the way sports and culture have merged, and we're still seeing it 35 years later, Jerome Brown's at the forefront of that. And people aren't like putting that together. They're not, it's not, it's like, oh, a coincidence that he was here. You know, coincidence he was there. It's just a coincidence he was like, you know, this D tackle who was loud and brash and getting sacks and dancing. Like, yeah, we're still seeing that happen in sports and in football to this day. We're still seeing now it's no big deal. Everybody, it's almost like swag is almost like played out. Every kid, every college team. Sometimes I'm wondering, I'm like, yo, you're like five and eight. You know, I'm looking at a basketball team. I go, well, what do you have to be bragging about? So we're just used to it. It just always happens. But it wasn't like it wasn't like that until you had a guy like, and he had others too. He had other teammates, especially in Miami and even in Philly for sure. He had other teammates, but they followed his lead. And he was the guy on national TV. Because it's also it's easy to do it. Let's be real, Jose. Behind closed doors, in practice, you're talking. You know, just to the local media, whatever. But we're talking about on the grand stage. You know, we talked about that Oklahoma game where that's the game of the week. How many game of the weeks had Miami had at, at that point? At that point, right. Not too many. And Brent Musburger, and then you're get, you're mic'd up. The, mic, the camera's there, and you're calling the other team a bitch, and we ain't scared of you. We going to hit you. And, and who he was talking to. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, he was talking to Brian Bosworth, who was like all everything, you know, and he had his issues with the media too, but that was later on at the end of that tenure. And, but Boz was everywhere, everywhere. He was the most famous, one of the most famous athletes overall in American sports. And they're literally chomping him in front of America and just making that statement that the U is here. You know what I mean? You know, we're going to take over college football. It's It's important just to see that. It's important to see that. The fatigues that the nation saw that, the nation right. saw that. Like it's it's important that that has lasted in our minds and in our culture to this day, and that's Jerome Brown, and that's the, right. a legacy that he leaves beyond just tragically dying young, which is the first thing people think about is one of those athletes, popular athletes gone too soon. Uh, just beyond just being, you know, he was a really good player is he helped change the sports landscape, and we need to remember that. And that's why it's not just a Philadelphia story. This is a, it's a national thing, and it should be remembered on a bigger scale that we think about, you know, we lost Jerome Brown 30 years ago, but he changed the way we look at sports, and, and I'm forever grateful for that. Right. Uh, and, and, again, you if you, you know, say you're not fortunate enough to – you know, to have, you know, to live in Philadelphia and stuff like that, like we are. And, um, you know, you'll go to the Eagles games, you'll see 
hundreds of Jerome Brown jerseys. You know, people still wear those jerseys. You know, you look at guys, we talked about Aaron Donald, number 99, Warren Sapp, number number 99. It's like the first time, anytime I see that number, the first player I think about is Jerome Brown. And again, we're talking 30 years later, you know, like that, that number, I feel like means something. And I, I feel like that's why certain players will wear that number. Um, you know, you go, even when, you know, when this tragedy happened and, you know, you can go years after in Eagles games, you see banners hanging, you know, on the sides of the stadium with Jerome Brown, number 99 or whatever, or bring it home from Jerome or the JB sign. Like that's the patch that's on the jerseys. It's just like, I can't remember, like, I know we've lost a lot of like athletes throughout the years, tragically. And I know in Philly is we had Pelly Lindbergh, you know, a little bit right before this time or right around the same. Well, before his passing, obviously, this was in the 80s. Pelly Lindbergh was a goalie for the Flyers. who was a young, outstanding goaltender. He was going to be a great player. And he tragically passed away the same way in the car accident, you know. Um, but for me, in my lifetime, like there's no other there's nothing else that can compare to this because again even to this day I watch it and I still get like the hairs on my arm stand up because it's I still feel terrible you know what I mean because it, it was just it was such a tragedy in the middle of like again such a promising career that you can see it was promising you knew it was going to be great for years and years and years and we got robbed of that you know but um again that's that's the reason why you know I always say, man, things happen for a reason. And, you know, we don't know the reason, you know what I'm saying? I don't know the reason for sure. And it's just, again, like sometimes in sports and life, this stuff like this happens. So um, again, the legacy he leaves though, will live on forever. I know in Philly, it definitely will. Yeah. And we talk about some of the greatest players. People talk about Jerome Brown still. And I look at it, um, you know, just real quick. You said Pele Lindbergh from Philly in 85 or 86 that, you know, uh, we have Hank Gathers in 1990, right. Philly native, and that was a tragic. So, you know, that's two years before. So, yeah, that was a time of just young tragedies happened to these athletes in Philly. But, um, you know, Jose, I'm glad we did this, you know, yeah. and, and in our way to pay respect to someone who has a lot of impact on a lot of people, um, whether they know it or not. But definitely I know on you and on me too and, um, you know, R.I.P. Jerome, bring it home for Jerome. Those things that always stick with me. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I say them all the time, almost just like without I thinking. still can remember the song, like the yeah. hook to the song. They came out with a song, if you're not familiar, in 92 with Bring It Home for like before the season. It was just a Bring It Home for Jerome. like, mm-hmm. <laughs> And it was just super catchy. Everybody in the city knew it. you know. And again, if you were too young to even like experience that time and the, the dude – change the defensive tackle position to what we know what it is now and it's like more of like a pass rush you know you know position and it wasn't at that point it was like stuff to run and if you can get to the quarterback good if not all right like just make sure you know you, you stop in the run he came in and, and, and changed that whole thing and made it a made it an important position at the time where it was not so look it up check out the stats like you you'll be you'll be very impressed and if you uh you know, have any memories of Jerome or have anything you want to talk about, please, you can hit us up at Twitter, at BiggerGamePod, on Instagram, at BiggerGamePod. And you can even, you know, comment, check out the YouTube channel, Bigger Than The Game with Jeremy and Jose. And 
Also for podcasts, Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen, Google. Uh, please subscribe, like, comment. But you know, thank you, Jose, for doing this episode yeah. with with me. Um, it's a special one. So, for the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Jose Ruiz, I'm Jeremy Dove. Thank you guys for listening to Bigger Than the Game with Jeremy and Jose. Thanks. Thanks.